Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay mm. girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 96 for February MMXV. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prizes you may encounter are April's Convergence, Nightwing Oracle No. 1, and Convergence, Batgirl No. 1, both for $3.59. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Backgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance, noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, this is the second episode of February that Backroll the Oracle is releasing, and if you haven't already, I do recommend you go and check out the fourth shipper special that, again, has Donovan and I and, and on it, and we talk about the anime Uran High School Host Club, which is just a blast, and it was a blast talking about it uh, with Donovan as well. If any of you out there saw Fifty Shades of Grey, that's not me, but I do hope that you survived the experience and you don't have nightmares. I can only imagine. And of course, I hope anyone, if you're up there in Boston and you listen to this show, Man alive, I, I listen to the Weather Channel every morning before I go off to work, and uh, I just, man, I, I grew up in Buffalo, so I certainly know snow, but I feel like 
this this is some intense snow that uh, you guys are getting. Well, this episode jam packed once again with the with the vintage issues and. Not that I'm reviewing a bunch of them, but I have to cover a bunch because the ones that I do review are are spaced, you know, are almost few and far between. And then the ones that are in the middle of them that don't have any Oracle appearances, it's good to know what's going on in there to have some continuity. So there are a lot of issues that I will cover in this first half. But before I even get to that, I do have one listener email. And it's from Michael Delosier. So I'm getting better, I think, at that. I, I love now. I'm so appreciative, Michael, that you actually uh, you give me a pronunciation guide, which I certainly asked for a while back. So he says, hello, still a longtime fan. Uh, Michael Delosier rhymes with and same emphasis as enclosure here. I'm sharing my short story with you and your audience if you choose to share it on the air. I hope it's not too steamy since it is based on the worldwide phenomenon and soon to be released on Valentine's Day movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. I know that you have the vocal chops to truly bring this story to life for your listeners. Without further ado, I present my short story, One Shade of Grey. Chapter 1 Grundy kill you, Dad. The End Thank you for letting me share the story with you. As you can see, I've poured a lot of myself into this work, and I hope you and your audience appreciate the subtlety, allegory, and craftsmanship involved in the writing. Happy Valentine's Day, Babs Lovers. Michael, when I first read that, cracked me up, but I didn't want to send you any email to let you know that it did, in fact, crack me up. But I hope that uh, my artistry and uh, my vocal talents were able to really encapsulate the, the feeling in, in the words that you put behind there. So let me know if, if, I, if I got it down for you. That is it for the, uh, the questions and comments. I'm hoping that next month I will have some more and maybe some from the Shipper Spotlight. Okay, and without further ado, there's really no delaying. Let's just get into the reviews. So first one, not reviewing, but I'll let you know what goes on. Suicide Squad 31, Personal Files of Father Richard Kramer, and the subtitle is Acts of Contrition. And Father Kramer goes around, he helps other people, either just his job or as a counselor. The issue deals with the ramifications of the Janus Directive, Amanda Waller's new and lower position, major force on the squad, things like that. There's another pie in the face. Dr. Light feels left out because he hasn't gotten pied yet, and he actually pies himself, and then he's actually pied for real. And we also get to know the background of Waller from her her sister, and just what she was like before leading the squad. This is actually a really interesting and and good issue to read, you know, what these different people are are experiencing from someone else's perspective and to also get some backstory on Amanda Waller, pre-Amanda Waller, as I like to say, just her family life and things like that. So good issue, and of course it follows up the Janus Directive. Okay, first review here, Suicide Squad number 32, Steel Trap. The cover date was August 1989. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, Pensler Grant Meum, Inkers K.S. Wilson with Kevin Phillips, and Colors Carl Gafford. 
The issue begins with a meeting about Raza Gavam, a.k.a. Ray Graves, who was recently led to Tehran and captured. Since he recently became a U.S. citizen, the president wants him to be safe from his inevitable beheading. After some discussion, Sarge Steele decides to send in the squad. At Belle Reve, Dr. McCoy is interviewing for the new position of head shrink, but Waller is not enthused, even though both Father Kramer and Kale approve of him. McCoy tells her that if he says a member shouldn't go on a mission, then she better listen, and he doesn't do windows. And oddly, Waller allows this. Flo talks to Oracle about her frustrations involving Prawn's tiger when Duchess bursts in and says she'll help Flo go on a mission. Duchess tells Waller that she is not going on the current mission to Tehran, and Waller doesn't do much to stop her. Later, Waller outlines the mission, and Major Victory argues that he should be mission leader, but Bronze Tiger retains that position after an interesting display of force. On the way to Iran, Vixen expresses her concern of the mission, but Bronze Tiger tries to defend what they're doing. Gavam is led out of his cell to his place of execution. The squad members hide in the crowds, and Shade, the changing man, hides behind the wall. At the Iranian broadcasting studios, Ravon threatens a man to keep filming the execution no matter what. The squad goes to work and save Gavam while Ravan kills the studio executive. Back home, Kill makes a statement about the squad and the mission while Waller wonders where Duchess is. Well, wonder no more, Amanda, because Duchess, uh, back in her Lashina outfit, attacks Big Barda at her home, demanding to go back to Apocalypse. And this is going to be the big thread that carries throughout the rest of this particular Batgirl the Oracle episode. So this particular issue really starts off quickly, and... As I was reading it, I thought, man, should I already know who this Gavam character was? But I did some research. This is actually his first appearance. We do learn a little bit more about his relationship with Tehran through the issue. But I wish that that this would have just been a pre-established character. So perhaps the beginning wasn't so jarring and we'd we'd get an idea of why he was so important and was was the squad going in really needed and, and things like that. I like getting an inside look at the meeting, understanding the thought process of military leaders and why they would decide to send the squad in. Dr. McCoy, during his interview, seems like a crazy character, and it's funny to see Waller's annoyance at what he says. When Waller threatens to kill him, you really get a sense that he will not back down, and he plays her game well. He actually reminds me of Creeper in some ways, and I also like that he has stipulations, and one which makes sense, and one which does not. So he, he doesn't do windows. I'm not really sure what exactly that means, but we've seen in previous Suicide Squad issues that previous psychiatrists, you know, the one that walked out, which I, I cannot recall his name offhand, but, you know, he would say that someone is not fit to go on this mission and Amanda Waller would just overrule him. So I do like that McCoy here is putting his foot down saying, you know what I say goes. So it seems like he does have the squad members best interests at heart. So Oracle, let's talk about it and the appearance here. While the body and clothes are gender ambiguous, you know, the wheelchair is telling. I think it narrows down who this person could potentially be. There's trust there because, I mean, Flo is telling her about her doomed love life. We know that Flo has these unrequited feelings for Ben, aka Bronze Tiger. This is something that's been ongoing. And to, to tell Oracle about it obviously means that there's some sort of established relationship 
there now and there's trust there. Also, this conversation, you know, just telling about a love life feels like it would it would point more to a female since a male probably would not be patient with it and probably wouldn't really want to talk about something like that. Oracle then gets another call, which leads one to think that she is expanding beyond the Suicide Squad and Manhunter. So I think uh, Oracle is getting his or her fingers in more pies now and is just more established in the DCU. So Duchess really seems to have changed rather quickly, if only in the fact that she's a little crazy in how she addresses Flo, saying she'll help her get on a mission, which I think is a terrible idea because Flo is obviously not mission trained or field trained, and then, you know, just walking out on Waller. Why does she make a move to get back to Apocalypse now all of a sudden? And obviously these Suicide Squad members, I think that there's... They each are, I think, a little short on sanity, but it just seems like there is a really quick change in this particular character, and so why now is my big question. I found it amusing that Ravon, obviously a crazed killer, and I did read up on him while or after I had read this issue, He's he, he is crazy, and he, he's pretty... Uh, I I don't, bloodthirsty, I guess, would be, I mean, just if you read the rest of this issue, you can certainly tell, and even later on in, in future issues, some of the things that he does. He certainly has an interesting history with the squad, but I, I so back to why why I found it all amusing is he suggests killing the leader of Iran to throw the country in turmoil, and you see a silent panel, and Waller actually considers it for a moment. He's like, I like where your head's at, but now's not the time, and I just thought, oh my goodness, can't believe she even considered it. Another great moment was Bronze Tiger putting an apple on the head of Major Victory, saying he was going to swipe the apple off the top of his head. Major Victory saying, you know, try it. And Tiger already has the apple, and that was the way he he proved that he was going to be the leader for the mission. I liked Shade the Changing Man. I thought he was interesting with cool powers. The first time I've ever seen him, so I did read up on him a little bit. Boomerang goes a little crazier than usual, uh, taking people out, saying he's starting to understand Khomeini and how fun it is. And I thought, my goodness, we've really dated ourselves if we're relating to Khomeini there. And also the fact that a character is relating himself to him is uh, pretty crazy. The whole situation with the studio executive seems a little forceful, but it's probably to highlight the lethal nature of Ravan or Ravon. I wonder why keeping the cameras rolling is uh, a purpose. Shouldn't the squad do it all quietly? I mean, in the end, it gets some bad press in the States, which is a problem in future issues. Is it to show Iran the power and reach of the U.S.? Is it just Ravan being crazy and trying to mess the squad up since, I mean... He's, like I said, interesting history between the two, and maybe he's trying to thwart them. Not really sure. It's not really well explained, but that's also the scene where you really see his bloodthirsty nature. Pretty shocking ending, I would say, just because uh, it's really random. You know, Bart is at home, and then all of a sudden she's attacked because Lashina wants to go back to Apocalypse. And there's really no connection with the main story, besides the fact that Duchess said, aka Lashina said, that she wasn't going on the mission, and she's going to help Flo out. But it just makes it all the more bizarre, and I assume there are going to be ramifications in the next issue, and I do assume correctly. Overall, somewhat of a a disjointed issue and in a way just like the one previous 
with the tales from Father Kramer, I feel like almost placeholders. The Father Kramer was certainly a wrap-up and then shift from Janice, and then this one is still a placeholder, and I think pushing towards this next big storyline with Apocalypse and getting Suicide Squad in deeper. I feel like we, we haven't really hit a big moment with the squad yet, and this is just almost a one-shot that leads into the big story. I'm going to give this 6 out of 10 crosshairs. Now, before I go on, a listener did ask, you know, to bring the letters pages back, and I do have to say that I guess I was just reading The Suicide Squad, and then, you know, after I got to it, I was closing my little comic there, but actually there are letter pages in Suicide Squad. Whether I'll go back to reading them, have yet to decide, I did bring Shiver Spotlight back, so that's there. But I do want to read just a snippet from a a letter in the back from Kent Silvera at 1150 Ranchero Way, number 75, San Jose, California, 95117. At the very end of his letter, in parentheses, he says, Could Oracle be the newly paralyzed Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Backroll? Or would that be too obvious? Well, Kent, you and I are on the edge of our seats waiting to find out. And it'll be a little while, too. I'll tell you that to find out. Next up, not a review, but a recap here. Suicide Squad number 33, Into the Angry Planet. I wonder what that angry planet is. So Lashina goes to Arkham Asylum to recruit Deadshot for her apocalypse mission, but she ends up leaving with Ivy because Deadshot doesn't want to go. Deadshot and Cobra will soon become bitter enemies. Ivy and Lashina knock out Nightshade, a.k.a. Eve, take her with them. Dr. McCoy has a therapy session with Dr. White. Lashina offers help getting home to Shade the Changing Man if he helps her. A new security bracelet is being designed. Waller asks Flo to talk to Oracle about the Loa, which they have problems with, and that'll be a a new enemy for the squad. And the printout from the conversation reads, Specific questions yield specific answers. General questions yield only general confusion, which was smart of Oracle because, well, I guess just... Ask me about Loa, and I'll give you general things about Loa. Flo tries to go on a mission with Bronze Tiger, but gets shot down. Lashina recruits naive Flo. Shade knocks Vixen out, then Boomerang, and Lashina gets major victory and Count Vertical, as well as Amanda Waller, a gift for Granny Goodness. So she practically has the whole squad, with the exception of Bronze Tiger, Dr. Light, Punch, and Julie. And a question I had earlier was answered about Lashina, because here we see that Amanda was expecting her to pull something like this, so I guess it's not as random as I had thought. Interesting to see Ivy join the team, and I'm just wondering why Lashina needs so many people. And that goes into Suicide Squad number 34, Armageddon. That's right, I said it, Armageddon. So Lashina and her crew make it to Apocalypse in a place called Armageddon. The landing causes the death of hundreds of innocent lowlies, and this makes Shade upset, but Lashina doesn't really care. As they fight, Lashina lets him know that now she is home. Any of the people that came with her are expendable, including him. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Sarge Steel calls Bronze Tiger and tells him that the use of Fallon's is suspended and he is not allowed to contact Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle. Ben is upset and goes after people to help him in Arkham instead, so going around the rules there. Back on Apocalypse, the rest of the team are awake and out of the 
flying vehicle and have mixed reactions about being there. We then learn about Washina's motives as she explains she was stranded on Earth after trying to rescue Glorious Godfrey and one of the Furies, Bernadette, attacked her in order to take her place as leader of the Furies on Apocalypse. She plans on reclaiming her position by killing Bernadette and those with her can either help or die. They fight off an attack by parademons and Granny Goodness arrives with the Furies and even Waller decides to fight with Lashina. What other options are there really? On Earth, Bronze Tiger goes to Arkham to get Deadshot, finds out Oracle has no other names but Scott Free to get to Apocalypse and all seems lost. They don't really know what to do, but luckily, the Forever People appear. Which brings us to Suicide Squad number 35, That Hideous Strength. So we've got some matchups. It's basically a knockdown, drag-out fighting issue. We have Vermin Vundabar versus Boomerang, Stompa versus Vixen, Harriet versus Shade, Granny versus Waller. Waller is actually seriously injured, and Ivy goes to help mainly so she can get home. Artemis, instead of Artemis, uh, who names her pets incorrect Latin, which go one, second, third, Unus Secundus Tertius, not sure who made that up, versus Nightshade, who brings the fight to her realm. We have Kanto versus Count Vertigo, and Bernadette versus Lashina, which is really the main fight. Lashina ends up breaking Bernadette's neck and is welcomed back into the Furies and offers Flo as a new orphan to train. So now we know why she was so interested in Flo. And the rest of the squad that came forcibly uh, with her, she decides to kill. So that was 35, basically, like I said, big fight. Very similar to the Death of Superman issue with Doomsday and Superman. That was just bam, 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 lots of fighting. And then this brings us into Suicide Squad 36 in final battle. So this is the final part of this apocalypse arc. Dr. White has a change of conscience and decides to be a good guy. The Forever People take the Earth group to Apocalypse. Vertigo kills Kanto and then collapses, dead himself. Or so we believe. He's actually not really dead. A sad moment occurs with Flo calling out Ben's name and Ben calling out Vixen's name. How awkward. Dr. White is convinced to act a hero by the ghostly presence of Jacob Finlay and is killed. And this was Jacob's thought all along. Dr. White and Finway realize they're now stuck together forever, and we see the devil talk about losing the war. Darkseid appears, resurrects Bernadette, and uses his Omega Beams on Lashina. Flo is killed, and Darkseid offers to resurrect her, but Walla refuses, knowing that she would be his slave. Darkseid tells the others to return home, and Waiter says that he has grand plans for them, meaning the squad. And that is the end of the Apocalypse story. So, like I said, you know, I feel like we had some filler issues, and really the big thing at the end of 32, or really the big thing with throughout it, though you wouldn't have known by reading it, was that minor, those two minor moments with Lashina, because then we go into Apocalypse. So, you know, I, I would give this whole story, I think, 8 out of 10 crosshairs. I actually thought it was pretty interesting. I think perhaps it could have been maybe one issue less. You know, people like to watch fights in, in comics, but just that one issue is basically 
fighting between different members, but it was nice to pit up a Suicide Squad member with a member of the the Furies. It reminds me of that one Birds of Prey issue, that was the Birds of Prey versus the Suicide Squad, and then they ended up working together. But the casualty list, the problem, a, a big thing with with this arc is just the fact that the Suicide Squad is already, I think, very much in flux after the Janus Directive, and then this happens, and now, my goodness, it seems like we're, we're on the verge of chaos just with the number of members that are either incapacitated or dead now. It's an unexpected and interesting way to bring the squad to Apocalypse. It's something that I certainly was was not foreseeing, though. I mean, knowing that Duchess was Lashina is something. I, it certainly should have been a possibility, but I guess I, I always think of the squad as sort of going up against more realistic threats uh, rather than these sorts of things. So yeah, it was, it was a different storyline, one that I wasn't expecting. I was glad to see that Washina's reasons were explained because like I said at the beginning, it seemed very random. Why now? I do still wonder, you know, why was she biding her time so much? I'm glad it was explained. Waller was expecting something could happen, was watching her. And then of course we do get the backstory of how she lost her position and why she wanted to kill Bernadette. I did like seeing the fight the matchups and everything like I said probably could have been divvied up within another issue and, and perhaps cut one out uh, and then of course we have Dark Side bringing somebody back from the dead offering to bring Flo back but that's turned down but there's just a heavy body count and I just foresee really big ramifications from this particular issue or arc story arc rather and uh, I will say I'll give you a peek into the future and tell you that that is in fact true so like i said good story arc it was it was certainly interesting nice to see the forever people and and the furies and even good old dark side so eight out of ten crosshairs there and the final issue that i am not reviewing is suicide squad 37 threads the squad returns with two dead and one barely alive, that being Vertigo. Ivy and Deadshot asked to stay on. Shade goes home to Meta. Major Victory gets pied in the face. Mari and Ben go to see Sergeant Steel to explain why he disobeyed orders. In Russia, a metahuman experiment named Steel Wolf is beating up some soldiers in test. Russia is creating Red Shadows, an intelligence agency made up of metahumans like Checkmate and Suicide Squad. So Russia's got to basically do whatever America America does. In New Orleans, LOA or LOA uses zombies to destroy a crack house that is encroaching on LOA territories. After a swim, Punch opens his locker to reveal a bunch of pies. So it seems like he's the pyre that's been going around throughout the Suicide Squad. His wife, Julie, threatens to kill him, then Waller also threatens to kill him. But Punch says he's framed, and after an elaborate Sherlock Holmes explanation from Murph, we finally find out that Boomerang was the one throwing the pies. And as a result, Boomerang is dropped on an island 20 miles from Australia. It reminds me of that beer commercial, you know, too heavy? I mean, he's been pieing people, and so apparently he's just left out on a deserted island. Uh, Waller's happy Boomerang and the mad piemen are gone when a lurking Murph throws a pie to keep up the tradition. 
which I thought was great. Again, sort of a transition issue like we had seen before, really going from Apocalypse to the next issue, which if you think about it, the next issue is also a transition issue. But we're just pushing forward. You know, the main threads now are Loa cleaning up after this Apocalypse thing. And I foresee the Red Shadows Intelligence Society going to be a a threat as well. I think my favorite part was certainly the revealing of the Pie Men, and I thought it was too easy when Punch opened his locker. Though actually I thought it probably was Punch, but I think given his general personality, too easy of an answer. Just Murph and his explanation and how he was narrowing people down, and you know, even if he took out everyone who got pied, that left no one, so someone had to pie, and then it happened to be Boomerang. And then Murph, of course, Pine Waller at the end. It was, so it was good. So now the mystery of the Mad Pieman is solved in Suicide Squad number 37. So sorry if I spoiled that for anyone. A greater mystery, perhaps, than Oracle. Who is Oracle? And revealed before the identity of Oracle is revealed. And the final issue of this vintage stock and one I'm actually going to be reviewing, is a really big one. Suicide Squad number 38, Caging the Tiger. Cover date, February 1990. Plotter, John Ostrander. Scripter, Robert Greenberger. Layouts, Luke McDonald. Finishes, Jeff Isherwood. And colors, Carl Gafford. The Louisiana Ordinance Association, a.k.a. LOA, in case you were wondering what LOA means, talk about what they can do now that Suicide Squad has really messed up in the public eye and Waller's on the outs, and they decide to spread cocaine throughout the country and turn users into mindless slaves for an army. And BTW, those are the zombie slaves, so that's how they become zombies. The main focus of this issue, though, is Ben, and he is seeing Sarge steal after the Apocalypse mission. That's Steel did not sanction. Before Ben comes in for judgment, perhaps at the White House, as one image seems to suggest, several officials talk about his past and stability, or rather instability. He's had erratic behavior since childhood, traveled and studied with different martial arts masters before settling with the O-sensei, where he also met Richard Dragon, which that name should sound familiar since we saw him train Oracle with the extremistics in Oracle Year One, Born of Hope. Then his fiance, Benz, was killed by the League of Assassins. He was captured, brainwashed, and took on the guise of Bronze Tiger. A turf war between the League, led by the Sensei, not the O Sensei, but another sensei and Rachel Ghoul goes to Gotham Batman of course enters the fray and Kathy Kane is killed Agent Faraday wanted Ben back and decided to extract him and Amanda Waller setting up her new task force helped deprogram him for this Ben feels he owes Amanda a lot Faraday ends up getting kicked out of the council and this is present day because he doesn't agree with being so hard on Ben and not trusting him elsewhere Julie finds out she's pregnant Waller contacts Oracle and tells it that Flo dies, and it was a waste, says there will be changes, and wonders if Oracle knows any good computer technicians. Oracle only cuts the connections, and for the first time, we see that, in fact, Oracle is Barbara Gordon in a wheelchair with a Batgirl doll by the computer crying for her friend Flo. Say what? Cut! No, 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 man. You're making me fall asleep. To death, bro. Okay, the line is... Say what? Say what? Say what? Say what? Say... Say... What? 
What? Say what? Not me. This character is not me. Say what? Stop it. So mark this down. This is historical issue 38 of Suicide Squad. And gosh, nearly what? Six months since the Killing Joke special that I did. Basically six months since uh, I started down this little path here. History in the making. Finally, Ben walks in to the council and undergoes an interrogation regarding the trip to Apocalypse. He is asked to explain himself and defend his character and prove that he doesn't kill anymore. We find out that all his rage and tendency toward violence all started when a white intruder threatened to kill his parents and he ended up stabbing him repeatedly with a carving knife. We then see firsthand his journey through learning martial arts and guidance under O-sensei. When he was captured by the sensei and the league, he was told to build the tiger mask and put his anger in it. But nothing compared to running up against Waller, but he says running up against the wall. And after that, he destroyed the mask. Sarge Steel brings out a facsimile mask and tells Ben to put it on to prove he has changed, pushing him to admit that he doesn't kill because he actually likes the bad people to suffer. In a fit of rage, Ben destroys the mask and runs out. The council washes their hands and puts Checkmate in charge of the Loa mission and the squad will be shut down. And outside in the rain, Mari yells for Ben. Okay, so first of all, the cover, I don't talk about these covers a lot, but I really did like this. We actually see the words uh, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, which is a poem by William Blake. And it also appears as a Batman the Animated Series episode, so I did like that. The Loa meeting at the beginning is very interesting, using the upheaval of the Suicide Squad to their advantage, which is smart. It's interesting that one of their members has a connection with the U.S. government. I do wonder to whom he is speaking, but it seems like a higher up, to be sure. I like that Dumbawa looks and almost acts like a male form of Waller, and I feel like this is probably intentional. While I've only seen a few moments of Loa from what I've been reading, it it was a good beginning to have more explanation as to the zombies and to the main evil plan, but perhaps we'll learn more about them. As I've said before, I think that this is going to be a a big plot point running through issues as we continue on. I do... I guess I shouldn't say like, but, you know, drugs are generally the standard way to go, and it's certainly a problem that we have today as well, so it's good that, you know, we can relate back then. As I'm reading it, you know, I can relate to present timeline, and the zombies are caused by the use of these drugs, so I I am wondering how this is going to be stopped, uh, given how widespread the problem is going to be, since it seems like just this whole plan is going to be, whoo, countrywide, so how's it going to stop? There's a weird moment that Dumbala says their whole plan will go down the drain if the U.S. legalizes cocaine and just laughs. And I wonder what he would think about the legalization of marijuana or what we as readers would think now if he had said that the plan was for marijuana instead of cocaine. And, of course, there are states that are, in fact, legalizing it. So that would be ironic reading that sort of thing today. At first, I was not really enjoying this issue as much just because it seemed like an origin special for Ben, uh, what with giving his backstory. And I, but I did like getting to know Ben in this third-person way, with one person on his side and, and others against him. So you really get multiple perspectives on who the character is to other people. I, I just learned a lot, I'd say, about, about Bronze Tiger more than I had originally known. 
I especially liked it when Faraday decides to go and extract Ben in the past, and we see Faraday defend Ben in the present and then walk out on the meeting. So it was a nice juxtaposition there. Julie being pregnant is a weird scene, if only because she and Punch are never serious. Strange characters, frankly. And I just wonder how they're going to be as parents. So it's more of like a a disturbing and scary scene. And I'm wondering about the future. I was shocked to read that Kathy Kane was killed. Something that I didn't think about, or or know about, rather. And and according to Josh Bertoni, this is her first post-crisis mention. And it's just shocking because it feels like just yesterday I was reading Freedom Fighters, I think, 14 and 15, where Batgirl is there and she ends up teaming up with Kathy at, at the carnival. And it even mentions the carnival she was working at. And Bronze Tiger was originally tasked with killing her, but... He was fighting Batman at the time and somebody else did. So it was just shocking to to see that she was killed. And, well, I guess, you know, it's not the Batwoman show. So I don't keep up as much with that history there. The Oracle scene was really powerful. It was interesting how Amanda seeks Oracle out. Because, obviously, Amanda needs information. She goes to Oracle. But this was, I felt, a different reason and way that, that she's seeking her out. I think it shows how important Oracle has become to the squad, and now that we have this void with Flo dead, perhaps Oracle is going to become a key member. It's also powerful because Waller shows some remorse for what happened, though, of course, in the same breath, she also asked for a recommendation for a computer technician, so you wonder how sensitive she is. But what a great time to reveal that Oracle is Babs, you know, in such a tragic moment. And I think it goes back, really, to Suicide Squad 32, where she and Flo were just so recently talking about Ben and, you know, just relationship issues. She and Flo are clearly friends, and, you know, it's clear that this hits Oracle hard. So I I think uh, this is just a great way to reveal it, and, and I'm glad that Ostrander waited a little bit for her to be revealed, uh, had the mystery going, and then, of course, you know, yes, it's it's Barbara Gordon. So now, where do we go from here? I think that the most powerful moment from the issue besides Oracle's reveal is the interrogation of Bronze Tiger. Getting to know him and his past from his perspective now. So he went from the third person, someone on his side, someone against him, to the first person with with Ben, of course. We learn of his anger, his just his anger and, and what he went through, the tragedy and journey he went on, and finally breaking down and showing that he really hasn't gotten over his core issues. Uh, was just it was all very emotional and and almost hard to read because the whole point of of this interrogation was to break him and prove that he was not suitable as a leader for the squad and it almost reminded me of a zero dark 30 when that guy was was hanging up there but i don't know why that it reminded me but there's just a moment where he's in a uh, warehouse sort of thing if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about but i just thought about that movie in particular Steel revealing the mask and Ben ripping it up at the end were both really good moments that I enjoyed. One thing I'm confused about slash wonder if there's an inconsistency is the Ben, fiancé, sensei, and the league situation. So if the fiancé was killed by the sensei, it would make sense that the league would have to capture and brainwash Ben in order to get him to work with the league, as told by Faraday's backstory. However, in Sarge's retelling in the 
presence of Ben and really Ben's telling, it seems like Ben may have been captured because his hands are, in fact, tied behind his back. But then it just seems like he's merely convinced by the sensei that he can get rid of that anger and he goes along with it rather than being brainwashed. And this, if this is the true way to read this scene, is what doesn't make sense to me because who would work with the group that killed his fiance even with this particular incentive? I liked Ben saying his rage ran up against a wall that it couldn't consume or scare. And of course, the wall was a manage is a great way of phrasing that. Uh, Dramatic ending with Ben running out and Mari running after him. And of course, the whole scene happens in the rain. Don't the best romantic scenes happen like that? So I think this is a big issue, really, not only with the team losing Ben as a leader, but the team on the attack from an enemy, because we have Loa doing things that the squad doesn't know about yet, and from allies with Sarge Steele and him trying to really dissolve the squad. Big changes are clearly on the horizon, and of course, Oracle was revealed. I really recommend this issue, especially if you are a Bronze Tiger fan. And I think throughout this particular Batgirl Oracle episode, I've been saying, you know, this is just a filler issue. It's a transition issue. And again, because it's not contained within a bigger arc, there are some threads that are going to tie, you know, threads that tie backwards to things that had happened. The Loa, of course, goes forward and Ben and everything. But really, this is, you know, just a single action issue and and despite these threads however i think that it's really strong it's it doesn't i mean if it is a one shot it's a really powerful one shot that does have clear ties in the past and in the future so i'm going to give this nine out of ten crosshairs when i come back i will review batgirl 38 and gotham academy number four But first, we have Zayas' Radio Hour featuring Heroes We Could Be by Alesso and featuring Tov Lo. Talk to you soon.
Welcome back. So the next issue, of course, is Batgirl. And I feel like I've been saying a lot about these particular issues with this with this new creative team. And this next issue is no exception to me talking perhaps more than I ought. But to preface this, I do, of course, you know, I get my comics a month late because I do do the mail ordering system of comics getting my comics and I do remember Josh Bertoni texting me at one point and saying issue 38 is really 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 good so I was thinking oh man you know I should get pumped for this and after reading it I didn't really feel a level of you know excitement and enthusiasm that I have in the past when reading this current run of Batgirl but I felt like this particular issue was a more thoughtful issue and contemplative. And that's something that I think is, is a positive coming out of this run because we've seen in the past, I think especially with, you know, issue 35, which was just so fun with, you know, Robot Pony and, and the animes coming to life and everything. And, and then we also see here in 38, we can tackle an issue surrounding this particular character and and just some things that she's doing that perhaps is not right. And I think that that is certainly a positive just for the creative team that they can be this well-rounded and have fun, but also take a step back and also show, hey, something's not exactly right. And Babs Babs may not be going down the right path at this moment, but there are some people in there to lead her on Back back to that uh, straight and narrow path. But uh, besides, you know, let me actually do the review instead of reviewing before I even plot it out. So here we go. Batgirl number 38, Likeable. Writers Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher. Artists Babs Tarr. Breakdowns Cameron Stewart. And colorist Maris Wicks. 
Since Batgirl became a sensation in the neighborhood of Burnside, she decided to take control of how her persona was presented by keeping up a social media presence, and since then, she's been all over the internet. The idea doesn't really appeal so much to her friend, in quotation marks, Dinah, who takes her aside at one point to warn her that her internet celebrity is changing her and putting her in danger, not to mention that it risks drawing the ire of the Batman. Babs responds that she was already in the spotlight, and this is how she's rolling with it. And finally, she's having some fun after everything she's been through. Dinah accuses her of behaving childishly, and angrily Barbara suggests she pack up and get out of her life. Fed up, Dinah agrees. Later, Barbara has her second date with Liam Powell from the GCPD, but she is clearly distracted by her argument with Dinah. She's worried that their friendship is over. Huh, thought it was over a couple issues ago when she burned her stuff to the ground. Accidentally, of course. She apologizes for venting to him, and Liam admits, jokingly, that he's used to Hook setting him up with angsty girls. In truth, he had been happy that the app led him back to her after they'd met briefly before. He jokes that the app was so persistent in trying to get him to ask her out that he thought her mom might be trying to set them up. He realizes quickly, though, that she had told him her mom had left her and apologizes for, basically sticking his foot in his mouth. She forgives him, and they nearly kiss when they are distracted by the flashing of cameras. The paparazzi are hounding a young man named Jordan Barbary, whose late father was once a bank robber who never got caught, and it's an open secret that Jordan is living off of those ill-gotten funds. Now Jordan is a train wreck celebrity on a reality show called Gotham Heights. Is Jordan Barbary Justin Bieber? That's what I want to know. Disgusted, Liam suggests that they leave because he can't stand to watch the young man's interaction with the hounding photographers. On the subway, he explains that Jordan injured someone while drag racing and got off without much more than a slap on the wrist. He comments that people like Jordan don't think the law applies to them and remarks that Batgirl makes the situation worse by breaking the law as a vigilante. Defensively, of course, Barbara wonders what Liam would think if Batgirl could get someone like Barbary off the streets for good, but Liam responds coldly that it is his job. But despite his rant, Babs admits that she admires his passion for justice and gives him a goodnight kiss in front of her door. Shipper! She returns to her apartment to find her roommate Frankie up late working again. The hook servers are rotten with a virus that they can't seem to get rid of. She needs to see it fixed before they move out of beta, and there are rumors that they're going to be bought out by a big player, and they just can't afford to be buggy in this case. Changing the subject, she wonders what's happened between Babs and Dinah, noting that Dinah left. You'd think Frankie would be super stoked about that. With all of her stuff, probably to stand with her bandmates, uh, say what? Barbara realizes with surprise that Dinah's singing with the band, and uh, I think all the readers were also surprised about this. While working at Burnside College the next morning, Babs falls asleep at her desk, and Nadima lets her sleep knowing about the date. She is given a rude awakening by Jeremy, who warns her that her professor, George Krupka, has come back from up north and wants to meet with her about her thesis, which of course she lost when her hard drive was wiped. Later, Barbara and Nadima go out for drinks to groan about the pressure of the meeting. Nadima warns that Babs will have to confront Professor Krupka eventually. Babs is unconvinced that she'll be able to resolve the situation, since a million lines of code she lost would take a year to write from memory. Not wanting to think about it, she asks Nadima for her take on Jordan, Barbary. Nadima responds that she dislikes him nearly as much as she dislikes the way people support his celebrity, despite knowing what an awful narcissistic monster he is. She thinks he's dangerous. That night, Batgirl pays a visit to Nadima's 
brother, Kadir, at his domicile, which was a little awkward, to ask him to let her borrow one of his lab's bikes so she can take down Jordan Barbary. Kadir expresses concern, warning he doesn't necessarily want to get involved in this, but she responds that people expected of her, they expected of both of them, so apparently he's forcibly signed on for the team, and, well, Kadir finally decides to help. Expecting Barbary to be looking to do some drag racing at night, following his social media account, she heads to a bar he was last seen at, where she is surprised to find that the live band is Dinah's Ashes on Sunday. She doesn't watch and listen long before Barbary spots her and calls her over, challenging her to a drag race. Seeing that he's drunk, Barbara warns that he won't be driving anywhere tonight. He teases that if she can catch him, she can cuff him, and he speeds off in his car, requiring her to give chase on her bike. As she chases him, he nearly runs over a pedestrian, and then Batgirl nearly runs her down on the bike, too. But before long, the police are on their tails, and Batgirl is equally culpable in the street race. Hurrying up alongside his car, Barbara realizes that they are speeding toward a man and his dog on the street, and she uses an explosive to make Barbara's car swerve aside just in time to miss the innocents. After correcting his vehicle, he pulls up alongside Batgirl again, and through his broken window, she throws a goo bomb that causes him to crash into the side of a diner. As she looks in on on him to gloat, she hears the voice of Liam Powell, her boyfriend, attempting to place her under arrest. She tries to argue her own case, but he won't hear it, and she ends up grabbing a smoke bomb and hurls it at him in order to escape. The next day over coffee, Barbara listens to Liam as he vents his anger over Batgirl's escape and, of course, the destruction of favorite coffee shop Cup of Joe's, which will now have to move out of Burnside because of the expense of rebuilding. Again, he apologizes for ranting, suggesting that he shouldn't be doing so when she's so hung up on problems like her brother. He asks to excuse himself a moment as Barbara realizes suddenly that, uh, I never told you about James Jr. and I never told you about my mom as he had said that she did. So she pushes the, the thought aside, uh, taking a break to look through social media response to her actions from the night before, and reaction to the destruction of Cup of Joe's is really negative, and Batgirl is blamed, so everything has switched now. And suddenly Liam's phone rings, and the call is from Barbara, except it's not. So Barbara picks up the phone, and hears someone claiming to be her promising to tell Liam all of her secrets to be continued. Well, the mystery of the big bad certainly continues, and as I go through this review, there are some hints I think that we can pull out again. Could it still be, you know, I still don't want it to be Dinah, but you you know it's got to be someone that is personally attached to her, so we will... I guess we'll see. When when we finally find out who it is, we'll, I'm sure we will all be shocked and hopefully say, yeah, that makes sense, and go back from the beginning and see those hints. But before I get to those clues, let's start You know, from the very beginning. I love the first page, which merges Batgirl's action with her relationship with people that she saves, and also her focus on a positive presentation in social media. I love how that is all arranged. It's also a nice transition from this page to... The next, in the scene with Dinah in the bar, because the final Instagram picture that you actually see shows Dinah in the background at the same bar. So it's almost like in movies when you see different scenes and then one of them like zooms into that picture. So that works really well. I like having Dinah chew Babs out in this particular instance, of course, because she's been having lots of problems previously. But it really does reflect uh, everything I said, I think, in the previous episode of this podcast. 
it mentions Batman, and, and Babs quickly shifts that conversation away, which I thought was really telling. She also mentions Alicia and the fact that, well, she doesn't hang out anymore with Babs, and perhaps she is too much of an adult for Barbara. And I thought that this was an interesting thought, just because I don't know if it necessarily jives with the previous characterization of Alicia, who actually did seem to have fun, and she was doing reckless things like being a minor anarchist and and protesting things like that but i guess that this is a way to again distance alicia from frankie but you know dinah being i think the first moral compass that we see in this particular issue albeit a very forceful one is good but it doesn't turn out well so babs ends up telling dinah to pack up and get out and she does that's all it took Uh, where's my easy button? I'm looking for it because we were having some problems and apparently she just needed to tell her to get out and that's all that needed to be done. And what what does talk about Dinah for a little bit? So I hope I am not the only one that felt like they were thrown for a loop when we find out that she is singing with a band and hanging out with them. So I went back and I was trying to figure out, you know, are there any hints as to, you know, showing that this this thing has been gradually building. So in 36, she does go to find a bar that isn't an artisanal microbrewery, but there was no mention of anything like this with the band prior. So I do wonder when this happened. There's no, she doesn't go out to any other bars. We do see her with Babs, of course. Was she at this bar in the previous issue when Babs was calling and Dinah was not picking up and wasn't there to help her? Remember I had such a problem with that? Uh, So this band, Ashes on Sunday, I wonder what type of music they're singing. I'm thinking some heavy screamer rock because the the name just in general reminds me of Pierce the Veil or Sleeping with Sirens that some of my female students are really into. But if we go back to this, I'm just trying to, you know, reason away why this is so sudden and there's no basis or any other evidence that would show that this is happening and I I think you know the easy way would be to blame the writers and say this is writer oversight but I do really feel like this is intentional and though I would like to see some little trickling evidence that this is building up I think perhaps that we are unaware of this change in Dinah in order to reflect how self-focused Babs has been because she's certainly only been thinking about herself and has not I think also noticed what Dinah has been doing so to call her a friend I mean there's obviously issues there but I think Babs is having some issues as well and she's not really uh, caring for their friendship as well So I think perhaps that may be the reason, but certainly something to talk to the writers about and and ask, you know, why this sudden development. So Dinah is getting a new book, if you've seen, you know, with, it's not even the New 52 anymore, but, you know, DC and and this new line of books that's happening post-convergence, and Brendan Fletcher is writing it, and I'm interested to see what it is going to be like. I don't think it's going to be birds of prey anything like it i think we're very much distancing ourselves from that however i'm wondering if dinah's becoming dazzler from x-men who of course dazzler had a famous singing career as well yeah so i'm interested to see how this is going to take and and how it is going to progress it's a little weird that it takes hook to set babs and liam up 
but I guess they really didn't have a chance to exchange info at the dagger-type crime scene, so perhaps it does make sense. Liam mentions Hook kept sending him notifications about Babs, and this makes me actually think that the big bad guy had something to do with this. And this, of course, adds more clues to the identity of this particular person, since the bad guy has to be good with tech. And perhaps he or she is also using tech to mask his or her voice when the call to Liam comes through at the very end. And that's another thing, because I think there were red flags right away when he mentioned something that she didn't remember telling him. And such an intimate detail, you know, mother equals someone close to her once again. So if it's not Dinah, I mean, James Jr. is certainly possible. And, you know, at first this happening, I really thought, oh my gosh, is Liam the bad guy? Just that first time when he let that thing slip, because it always happens in spy films, doesn't it, where... Someone mentions something and the hero usually says that I never said that. And then you realize that that person is a bad guy. So that's automatically the, the, the leap that I jumped to or the conclusion that I leapt to. The paparazzi and a popular star, again, true to life. And yes, I am wondering if this is in fact Justin Bieber, because wasn't he doing some drag racing stuff too? And he's a bit of a train wreck as well. I'm surprised Liam walks away from that particular episode because, you know, Jordan was being pretty uh, forceful with that paparazzo, I mean, physical abuse, which you see that sometimes, and I mean, as an officer of the law, should you not be there to protect and serve, but I guess he is off duty, and who knows if he's been drinking, and that would, of course, cause him to run into some problems as well. Now we get to a superhero debate, and something that I think we've seen forever. I think it will never end. I feel like we, we, you know, we see it with any costumed vigilante really that pops up that may have powers or may not. But whether or not a vigilante should be running around doing what he or she is doing, Liam, of course, represents the other side who sees the recklessness and is a member of the law where rules must be abided. And, you know, what an interesting dynamic that he's the one talking to Babs and Babs is Batgirl. And I honestly think that it spells trouble for the relationship because it's it's just like Spider-Man, really. Uh, it's my show, so, you know, Dustin can't complain about me making a Spider-Man or Marvel reference. But, you know, it's like Spider-Man because anyone that was in love with Spidey, but not necessarily in love with Peter, there was always a problem with that. And this is the reverse, of course, that he has feelings for Barbara, but that other side of her life is certainly, it's omnipresent. It's always there with her. And uh, I think it's certainly is part of who she is and and defines her as Barbara Gordon. So I I think that this is... uh it's not going to turn out well, is all I have to say about that. So it is a nice shipper. I, I, he does seem like a nice guy, liked their little romantic moments. But to be honest, I'm, I'm Team Jeremy right now. Maybe we should make some T-shirts, Team Liam, Team Jeremy, and see if they pop up at Comic-Con. If you do make one, search, search me out at Comic-Con and, and give me one. But I'm Team Jeremy all the way. And uh, I just I felt bad, so bad for him when you know he found out about the date and you could see how crushed he was. So Liam, later on in that date, he mentions Riot Black being out on the streets. I think he says mere 10 days later. How is he out on the streets? Why? Was it because he was taken down by Batgirl and not the authorities? I mean, he was taken down, but weren't there, wasn't there clear evidence what he was doing 
basic, I mean, practically identity theft, but, you know, breaking into, hacking into things, there, there's got to be some felony or misdemeanor there. I also wonder if this is more than a casual mention and has to do with the, the big bad. Uh, he does have the tech know-how. He probably was the one who ended up hacking into to Barbara's stuff, and that set off the fire. So he potentially could be the one who has... Uh, Backroll's identity, or he's working for the big bad. And of course, Frankie's app is all messed up, and I wonder, is this all connected? So, perhaps Riot Black was... He he got out of jail from, from a higher up. So, could it be James Jr., who does... I mean, he was able to get into the prison to, to visit uh, his father uh, during Batman Eternal. Another thing I do have to mention, a thought that popped into my head was Nightfall. And while I don't really like the character, I do wonder... I mean, bad guys are taken down only for a short amount of time. So I do sort of wonder, perhaps, that is a possibility. But we did see, you know, in Batgirl 34 that she seemed like she had changed and was regretful of what she had done, but who knows? I mean, it's... There's got to be a tie. This has not... I really don't believe this to be a new villain. It's got to be some pre-established person. Uh, Babs, and speaking of, you know, Frank's app and all the tech and, and Babs and her data being wiped out, is this an inconsistency here? Because, you know, in 35, I do believe, she got the Thunderbolt from Kadir to recover her data and then they were waiting. So why does it basically say now that she has not recovered it? Where was the thread tying from 35 to this one? And why weren't we told that it wasn't recovered until basically now? And it seemed like there was certainly a big chance. So I do wonder about that. Why is Babs going to a bar in the middle of the day, presumably drinking beer? You know, is it there something more productive to do? And of course, this gets her all riled up more easily with uh, the thing about Jordan Barbary. So perhaps Babs is a belligerent drunk, even though, you know, she's not drunk, but maybe she gets angry when she's drinking. I think it's inappropriate to go to Kadir's house and uh, a little sketchy. And, you know, even he is hesitant about getting involved. And and he asks, you know, how do you know I live? there and she says well it's my job to know and yeah that's a little weird even if it is a superhero and I think it shows her desperation so and and, you know tying to that I just feel like Babs is pretty out of control in this particular issue because it doesn't seem like Barbary is the type of person in her sphere of influence he needs to be put away by the police and even if he is getting out something more solid needs to be put down I so I know he doesn't stay but Batgirl is basically baiting Jordan in a way that she has not done before, and I think that it's dangerous. She should have shut him down before the race even started. There there had to have been some other way. Think about in the previous issue with Dagger Type and the girls. Right at the very beginning, she was using basically an EMP attached to the car. Should have done that. So I, I think that this was a rookie mistake, and Batman would, in fact, be livid. I do like Batgirl's safety phone, which reminds me of the Gooperang of, of Stephanie Brown. I don't like Batgirl or any, really, of heroes attacking police, even if it is to get away. And yeah, it is just a smoke bomb, but hey, it is Liam. And like I said, it's probably foreshadowing, right? Foreshadowing some future problems. 
This causes another conversation with Liam. This also causes a change in the populace's view of Batgirl. So everything from that first page just flipped around. I don't agree with Batgirl wearing earrings. Uh, I think that it's dangerous. And this happens in that basically going to the club and onwards just doesn't seem like a a good thing in case uh, they get caught or ripped out. Seems bad idea. So fake Babs calling Liam. Any of you watch Pretty Little Liars? So it it always seems like, you know, the liars, the, the girls there always get a call or a text at a pivotal time. And it always seems like the person is watching because it's a very knowing call or text. And, you know, this call, while on Liam's phone, comes at a time that Liam's gone. And the, po- the caller probably knows that Babs is going to answer. And, of course, why would the caller say, Liam, I'm going to tell you all my secrets. That's not how you would start off a phone call. So I think it very much is to bait Babs. But what is the motive for this big bad? If it is to take Babs down in all forms, how can Liam help in this regard and and attracting him to her, telling them the secrets and everything? Is it to just have them get closer and then reveal that, you know, it's Batgirl and that's going to be a really big problem? Perhaps. But I do wonder... Now, as as we're adding more people and more details and more clues as to who this person could potentially be, you got to think about what is the motives. But it's obviously a personal vendetta. It's very personal. This particular bad guy knows Babs. So James Jr. is still, I think, a big guess. I just wonder if uh, if he's the big baddie in Eternal. Can you play both sides in in the comic world you know would editors allow that so i don't know and and i don't really want i don't want dinah to be i i think that it would make sense if it were but i don't want her to be the villain so we'll, we'll stick with uh james jr there at the at the moment anyways this was certainly a wordy issue compared to others there wasn't really besides that first page any use of text bubbles or anything like that uh and it's not snyder wordy but uh just wordier than we are used to it brings a lot of issues to light with babs and the people close to her and it seems like we have a a gaping wound with babs and and i'm wondering what it is going to take to close it up so she's got to work through some stuff and we thought the people around her were messed up but perhaps it's just a reflection of how messed up babs still is even though she says you know she's finally having fun and and she's fine I have some problems with the seeming inconsistencies and and how Babs is acting, but I think this is purposeful. I do like that Liam and Dinah are really playing those moral compasses, almost like uh, Catwoman and Robin were for Batman in Hush. But I feel like the relationships are really going to be messed up in return because sometimes you can tell someone in a helpful way that, you know, what they're doing is destructive and you may help them but in the long run you may lose that relationship it's funny because i was just doing a bible study about that uh with nathan and king david so there you go uh so anyways i i did enjoy this issue like i said in the previous one uh i don't think i would not call this a fun issue because i do think that it is contemplative and a more serious and grounded issue but it, it's very well-rounded and i think it takes its time and it's deep and meaningful so i'm going to give it nine out of ten bats and our last book or my last book rather is gotham academy number four the secret of the symbol Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher, Art Carl Kerschel, colorists Geyser, Masasek, and Sergei Lapointe. 
After their experience on the previous night, Olive and Pommeline are sure that the thing they saw in the North Hall was not the ghost of Millie Jane Cobblepot. And when they ran out in horror, they made the mistake of leaving the door of the hall open, alerting the administration that they broke in, which means they will not have an easy time of getting back inside to investigate. Too shaken to participate in their gym class, their coach urges Pommeline to get into it and warns Olive that the headmaster wants to see her right away. While waiting outside the headmaster's office, Olive spots a symbol she recognizes over one of the windows in the hallway. While she takes a closer look at it, she overhears a conversation outside the window between Miss McPherson and Bruce Wayne. Wary of Bruce Wayne, Olive tries to listen in further, but the headmaster catches her, warning that the keystone above the window is loose and she could be hurt. He also adds that the North Hall is similarly dangerous and warns her to be careful, never outwardly conceding that he knows it was she who broke in. As she makes her way from the headmaster's office, Olive flips through her annotated copy of the diary of Millie Jane Cobblepot and discovers a note with the very same symbol she'd seen above the window on it. In her surprise, she fails to notice the stairs beneath her feet and loses her footing. Fortunately, she is caught by the handsome-slash-creepy blonde boy she has been seeing around. He admits that this isn't the first time he's caught her, but she doesn't remember it. He won't answer her questions about it, and it frustrates and embarrasses her. Worse, Kyle, her ex-boyfriend, saw all of those escapades. After getting changed out of her gym clothes, Olive interrupts her friend Maps in her art class to talk about what she has learned. She believes the headmaster is on to them and that he is somehow linked to the symbol they'd seen in the North Hall and that she has also found in two other places today. While Maps has a look at the book, Olive tries to explain that she decided to call it off with Kyle, Maps's brother. But Maps ignores her to explain that the page the image is on seems to show a floor plan of an academy building. Olive recalls that they'd seen a boy in the cafeteria draw the symbol in his sketchbook the other day, and they decide to interrogate him, given that he is also in Maps' art class, since that guy that has a crush on Maps. His name's Eric, and he is embarrassed and anxious when the girls approach him, complimenting his painting. Maps tries to jog his memory about the symbol by drawing it on his painting, and he is horrified by her actions, warning her not to do it. Overcome, he grabs all of his papers and runs away. Olive picks up a few sheets he dropped and discovers that they are script pages from the play Macbeth. All the maps follow up this lead by going to the school's auditorium, where they expect to find Eric working on the play. Unfortunately, he's not in the cast. Maps supposes that he might be part of the crew instead, but she's interrupted in saying so by Mr. Trent, the drama teacher, who emphatically recites a few lines from the play before bemoaning the fact that Olive refrained from joining the play as his Lady Macbeth. Ah, out, out, damn spot. Maps notices the ornate craftsmanship of the prop sword that Mr. Trent is holding, and he explains that they're made by a rather intense young student, whom all the maps suppose must be Eric. They find him in the prop room and corner him there, promising to leave him alone as soon as he tells them where he saw the symbol. To encourage him, Olive shows him her copy of Millie Jane's diary. He's taken by it and comments that he's seen symbols everywhere, like in the old chapel, the library, and the girls' dorm. Incredulously, Olive wonders what he was doing in the girls' dorm, and nervously he blurts out that he didn't move any of them. A puzzling outburst. That night, as Olive and Maps prepare to go exploring in their dorm, Maps is suddenly startled by the sight of a ghostly visage at the window. Unwilling to let the ghost out of her sight, Olive rushes over and smashes the window to grab it, proving, as she suspected, that the ghost was a fake. She leaves Maps to finish her preparations and marches off to confront the person behind the ghost sightings. On the roof, she discovers Pommeline's boyfriend, Heathcliff, with another girl, controlling the ghost like a puppet. Angrily, Olive demands to know why he would do this to Pommeline, who actually believes in ghosts. 
He begs her not to tell Pomeline, explaining that because she was so obsessed with summoning the ghost of Millie Jane, he thought that if he made her think she'd succeeded, he might make her happy. Reluctantly, Olive offers to keep it between them so long as he stops playing ghost puppeteer. As a sign of trust, she returns a pin of his that she found on the ground. Before letting him go, though, she asks him to tell her what he can about the blonde boy that she's been seeing around, and he identifies him as Tristan Gray, an exchange student. On our way back to her room, Olive spots the symbol in the stairs down from the roof. Remembering what the headmaster had said about loose stone, she pushes on it and is surprised when it opens the way to a passage. Without Maps' backup, Olive follows the passage until she hears the sound of Pomeline's voice. She discovers that she has a vantage point into Pomeline's room where she is on the phone with Heathcliff, reaffirming her intent to establish contact with Millie Jane's ghost. Smirking, Olive consults her copy of the diary and realizes that the floor plan drawn inside it is actually a map of these passages. She uses the map to find her way to Map's room, where she surprises her friend by calling to her through the wall. Moving on without Maps, Olive passes by another girl's room and overhears her own roommate, Lucy, complain that she wishes she could change rooms. Sadly, Olive supposes that it wasn't a great idea to come through here alone. Soon, her flashlight beam falls on a wider space where she discovers signs that someone has been spending time behind her dorm room wall. On that wall, she discovers photos and notes pinned, and among them is a photo of her with her mother. Suddenly, a thudding sound alerts her to the presence of someone else, and Olive whirls around to find Killer Croc standing over her. Though she is initially startled, she senses that he is just looking for a safe place to hide after escaping from Arkham Asylum. Softening, she promises not to tell anyone he's there, but she wonders if he can tell her about her mother, since they must have known each other. To be continued. I really liked this issue. I thought it was really strong. Uh, it was fun, just with you know the different character interactions and, and how dramatic Eric can be. And, of course, furthering the mystery, but I think in, in a good way, not in a, in a slow way where you're just like, ugh. More of this, nothing, nothing's being answered. The cover's a little weird, given that Kyle is not involved in what Maps and Olive are up to, so lies, lies and betrayal. I think, you know, like I said, this, this uh, issue's getting back to the stronger material of the first, and something that may shock you is that I liked that this issue started off with a little time skip. Normally, I don't like this, because, you know... It, basically that mysterious place known as off-panel land. I like things to be explained and, and really go from one point to the other, but I just think that this is such a strong opening with Olive and Pomeline staring at the dilapidated building, now boarded off, still trying to recover from the incident. And, you know, the Olive and Pomeline relationship, I really like how it's done here. I Again, I don't think that they're going to become friends, per se, but just them standing there together, not hating each other, shouting back hurtful words or being angry, I think, look at how much we had progressed and that they did survive this experience together. And then later on that she's trying to protect Pomeline and, and she feels sorry for her and things like that. I think this is great. Is the athletic coach a reference to the assistant editor, Matt Humphreys? I do wonder about that. One scene I have an issue with is Olive getting called to the headmaster's office. It serves plot purposes since Olive sees and hears Bruce Wayne speaking to McPherson about Olive and uh, Mysterious Knight, so I wonder if he went on a date with McPherson. And it also gives her a clue for later on with that symbol. But the headmaster really only warns her about trespassing in the North Hall and tells her about the break-in. So, uh, you know, did he just call her in to warn her in veiled terms? Uh, and I, I just wish the, the conversation 
conversation was more fulfilling and there was something else that he wanted to, uh, to talk to her about. I love the comical tumble that Olive takes down the stairs. Uh, could, could a banana peel have been there? Am I right, Donovan? And it could have been disastrous if you watch it, if that creepy blonde guy hadn't been there, who apparently knows all about Olive and somehow caught her before. And who knows what that's about? That's like the little by little, we're getting pieces of him, I guess, just like we're getting pieces of Olive. And to make it worse, of course, Kyle sees this scene, which is sad, and Olive still doesn't know who this guy is. I like the fun scene in art class, and I'm happy that Olive is seeking Maps out now, because normally Maps runs after Olive. And this also makes me think that she's taking to heart what Kyle had said, and I guess Maps is avoiding that conversation. So Eric is the guy from the cafeteria, and remember, he did his crazy stare moment, which I really liked, as that was, I was going to say animated, but drawn. And then he's even more spastic here, because, well, I guess the symbol makes him nervous, but, you know, he also has two girls coming up to talk to him, and one of them he has a crush on. And I love that he drops pages from Macbeth. Of course, we have to take something like that uh, with the witches and the ghosts and things. What better Shakespearean play to have? So Simon Trent, a.k.a. Grey Ghost in Batman the Animated Series, is the drama teacher, which is wonderful. And he pops in on the girls, staking out the play practice in a suitably dramatic fashion, sprouting lines as the first apparition in Macbeth. And I think it's also interesting that the teacher shows interest and all of being in the play and I wonder if there is a hint from this about her character Eric so nervous I just wonder why he is so nervous and what he is doing in the girls dorms who knows I like how calm and cool Olive is with the fake ghost of Millie Jane. And then our suspicions about Heathcliff and that button are correct. So basically he used a fake ghost to get a girl. I'm sure that this relationship is not going to turn out well. And I'm actually worried about Olive knowing the secret and what will happen when Pomeline finds out that Olive knows. And like I said, just lots of development in this Pomeline-Olive relationship since Olive actually feels bad that Pomeline is being tricked in this particular way. Heathcliff also helps us, luckily, find out that the blonde kid is Tristan Gray, and I hope that's not a Fifty Shades of Gray reference, but who can really tell? But really, he's an exchange student, so I wonder how Olive knows him, and uh, does Bruce Wayne know who this guy is? So this is a big mystery as well. The scenes where Olive goes behind the walls are great because you really get to know people, you know, without them knowing that you're there. You see Pomelon and her continuing obsession with the occult. Uh, she's either talking to uh, her boyfriend, Heathcliff, or her mother. And, of course, you see all the weird stuff she's got around. Apparently, she doesn't have a roommate either. She walked out. Olive's roommate and her take on Olive's change, which is... It's sad for Olive to have listened in on that. And then Matt sticking her big eye in between the boards and, and trying to see how to get in. I love that moment. And then the big reveal at the end. Didn't I mention Killer Croc as a possibility in a previous episode that that could certainly be? the Because you saw like the scaly eyes and things like that. So I thought, huh, is it Killer Croc? I love the character design here. Just really beautiful. Love the coloring and, and everything. Loved it. I love how Olive is shocked to see him. But 
she's calmed. She, I mean, she calms down really quickly. She takes it all in, looks at everything, which you see in the panel detail, you know, the Arkham, the chains, all of this stuff. And I, I love also that he has some sort of connection with her mom, which is something that I think is unexpected, though not far off base since, of course, they were both in Arkham. So he was probably the thing that grabbed her in the previous issue that's what i'm thinking and i wonder if he heard about olive from her mother and decided to watch over her after the collapse of arkham's that's what i'm thinking right now but in any case i love this development and i can't wait to see how it all unfolds so i just loved this issue i thought it was really strong yes so 9.5 out of 10 diplomas now over to chris for his batman 66 review Hey, thanks, Stella. As always, I appreciate you letting me give you a little break. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. I'm glad to be with you today. Thanks for downloading. And as always, thanks for not fast forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. Today, I'll look at Batman 66 number 19, cover dated March 2015. The issue's lone story is entitled The Villain of Vapor Street, written by Jeff Parker and art by Leonardo Romero. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. Our story opens in an auspicious evening in Old Gotham, where Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson partake in a local festival celebrating the oldest neighborhood in the city, complete with gas lamps and a town crier. At the podium, Mayor Lindsay announces the sponsors of the event, Duke's Fine Pipes, and the presentation of the Gotham's Girls Academy. Dick and Bruce suspect that both are frauds. But before they can react, the girls launch colored fog grenades, and Professor, not Lord, Marmaduke Fogg, makes his entrance. Mayor Linseed orders Chief O'Hara and his men to apprehend Fogg and the girls. But the girls quickly overpower them. Batman and Robin arrive, and the girls squeal at Robin's arrival and quickly pounce, subdue, and bind him. Batman himself is quickly waylaid, knocked out from behind, by the king of Fogg's sister, Lady Penelope Peasoup. Fog then activates a giant pipe on stage, releasing a perception-changing fog into the air. Our heroes revive, only to be confronted by what appears to be a torch and rake-wielding mob, who take our heroes to be bandits. On the next page, our heroes run off, in a panel reminiscent of the animated opening credits, and Fog calls himself by the first name of Phineas, and not Marmaduke. Say what? Our heroes do a bad climb to escape, only to have Robin met once again by the girls at a window, who manage to cut their bat rope. While falling, Batman presses the buckle on his utility belt, signaling Alfred, who drives to them and activates an inflated mat on the car's roof to land on. Now, armed with nose plugs, our heroes deactivate the fog emitted from the giant pipe. Our heroes wonder where fog keeps his chemicals for his fog, and a blind woman approaches and tells the duo that she overheard that they'd be at the number four steam heat plant at the Bowery. Batman and Robin go to the location and activate a fog themselves. The women then fight and punch and then beat themselves up. They then apprehend Fog, now addressed as Lord Fog, where Robin tells him to put that in his pipe and smoke it. Rudy Valley played Lord Marmaduke Fog in the Batman TV series and he was a singing idol of the 1920s and 30s, and one of the biggest celebrities of that time. Valley died in 1986 at age 84. Glennis Johns played Lady Penelope Peasoup on the show. She's a Tony Award-winning stage actress, and she played Winifred Banks in the Walt Disney film Mary Poppins. 
John's is 91. The villains appeared in the only three-part story in Season 3 of the Batman TV series, a rare feat if not a worthy one, in the episodes entitled The Londinium Larcenies, The Foggiest Notion, and The Bloody Tower. I didn't care for those episodes. It was no fault of the actors, but I thought it could have moved a bit faster story-wise if it was a two-parter. In one scene, Robin activated a tripwire opening a beehive, and this bee coming out of it that looked so fake to me even watching it as a child. When I found out who the villains were in this issue, I confess I cringed a bit. However, I was pleasantly surprised, liking it more than I had hoped, but just slightly. Romero's artwork gave a nice nod to the show with the running scene and a nicely depicted bat climb. There was something of a cliffhanger in this issue, which we don't get enough of in this series, and a bit of peril. I was put off by the different names, though, and titles for Fogg. Is he a professor? Is he Lord Fogg? Is he both? Is his name Marmaduke? Why was he calling himself Phineas? I think those continuity mistakes are a bit sloppy and inexcusable. Now, over on the TBU website, Ryan Blair gave this 2.5 out of 5. I am going to be a little more generous and give Batman 66, number 19, 7 out of 10 bats. What plans does Marsha, the Queen of Diamonds, have in store for our heroes in a future issue of Batman 66? How will our heroes overcome the threat of Death Man and the Penguin? How does the Joker come to be a hero of Gotham City? These and other confusing questions to be answered next time. Same Stella time. Same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. And now we have Babs in the Tube. This is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I'm watching the 1977 New Adventures of Batman, the television series. And this is Episode 5, The Bermuda Rectangle. The air date was March 10, 1977. Starring Adam West as Batman Bruce Wayne, Burt Ward as Robin Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite and the Batcomputer, Melanie Britt as Batgirl Barbara Gordon, Lenny Weinrib as Commissioner Gordon, and Professor Bubbles. Batman, Robin, Batgirl, and Batmite engage in underwater battles with Professor Bubbles in order to stop him from taking over the world. Take a listen. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil. Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen, proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder. And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman.
will change our radio frequency and allow us to cover the CB band. Breaker, Breaker, this is Red Leader. Anybody copy? That's a big 10-4, buddy. Do you see an eye in the sky? Holy Marconi! That's really great! Boy, if the man who invented radio could hear it now! Someone's entering the garage in the Batcave. It's Batmite! Uh, maybe it's time we taught him a lesson? You mean like keeping off other people's property? Exactly. Jumpin' Jupiter, what's this all? Hello, Batman. Robin? Robin, I think we caught an intruder. Intruder? It's me, Batmite! Oh, come on, fellas, let me out, please! Don't you know there's a law against trespassing? Yes, Commissioner. Would you come over to the office right away? It's very important. Robin and I are on our way. Let's go, Robin. Hey, you can't leave me here. You didn't read me my rights. We'll write you when we get back. I'm sorry I snuck in here without your permission. Now that's more like it. Thanks, Batman. Now, what do you think the Commissioner wants with us? Us? Do you want to go back into that cage? Okay, okay, if you feel that way. Come on, Robin, to the Batmobile. We'll see you later. 
sooner than you think, Batman. The ships were drones like this one. They were guided by radio. They carried no people, but their cargo was priceless. Each ship carried one part of this machine. It's for the NATO forces. Its code name, Operation Sunspot. What does this machine do? It harnesses the energy from the sun. In the right hands, it will be a boon to mankind. But in the wrong, disaster. The ships disappeared in this area, the Bermuda Rectangle. And where's the fourth ship? It left England this morning, Batman. Nothing must happen to that ship. I understand, Commissioner. Robin and I will leave immediately. Good. I'll have Barbara check a computer for the names of all persons ever convicted of spying or selling information to a foreign government. And good luck. This is a big job, even for Batman. You can be sure, Dad. I'll give him all the help I can. ship will pass Bermuda in six hours and ten minutes. Let's go. Greetings! Well, I'm ready. Ready? For what? Well, I kind of overheard. Operation Sunspot. We should have left you in the cage. All right, you're coming with us. We're taking him? The commissioner said this was top secret. We can't let him run around loose. Yahoo! Yes, Commissioner. This is Barbara Gordon. I have some information. I'll give it to you as soon as I change into Batgirl. I want to go along. Sorry, Barbara. We don't need another passenger. If my information is correct, you'll need all the help you can get. On second thought, maybe you should come along. I will need all the help I can get. All right, let's go. This is one mission we must not fail. not fail though and we won't shark tooth is getting anxious <laughs> have patience shark tooth the ship will be here soon we're over the bermuda rectangle now i'll call the commissioner There's a plane up there. Switch on the monitor. Batman calling, Commissioner. This is Batman. Commissioner Gordon, this is Batman. Do you read me? It's Batman. This is Commissioner Gordon. Go ahead, Batman. Commissioner, Barbara came up with some interesting information. I've been looking for Barbara. Do you know where she is? I'm sure she'll be back soon. She got an interesting readout from her crime computer. Professor Bubbles escaped from prison last month. He was chief scientist on Operation Sunspot. 
until he was sent to jail for trying to steal the plans. He might be at the bottom of this. Right underneath you, Batman. Search the area and call me if you find out anything. Commissioner, out. Batman, out. We must bring Batman down to us. How do we do that? By sending up some bait. <laughs> Bring it down. Bring it down. It's going down. We've got to see what it is before it disappears. Pull back the wings, Robin. Here comes the bat sub. Whee! This really beats a roller coaster. Robin, switch on the bat light. All right, it's time for the maelstrom. Range 100 yards. Start rotation. Look! It's a vortex. We can't outrun it. Every vortex has a vacuum in its center, so we'll head into it. I think I'm going to be shit. Hang on. We should be in the center any moment. You must still face the giant clams. <laughs> That's what I call clamming up. <laughs> Let's see you get out of that one, Batman. <laughs> Let's see you get out of that one, Batman. We're inside the clam. Batgirl, come with me. Well, what about me? You stay here and take care of Robin. Gotcha, Chief. I'll look after things here. What we need right now is a good idea. And good ideas aren't to be sneezed at. Sneezed at? That's what I call a good idea. His nose must be up there. I'll use these suction cups to climb up. You get Batmite. Break out the emergency food pack. 
is just the thing. Pepper, if we can make the clam sneeze, we may be able to get out. Now you crawl up next to his nose, blow this in, then get back and fast. No problem. Why, I remember once. That might please. All right, all right, I'm going. We'll start the bat sub. Hang on! Inside, quick! I did it! I did it! You did it! Holy eagle! All right, Robin. We'll talk about this later. Right now, we've got to find a hiding place for the bat sub. Break out the bat sonar and see if we can pick up the professor's voice. With Operation Sunspot, I will be ruler of the world. <laughs> you see, Bubble, I can force anybody on land to do what I want. If they don't, I will use the sun to melt the polar ice cap. I can put the whole world under water. The fiend. We must stop him. I'll get into my frog suit. If we could get word to the commissioner, he could notify the Navy. The professor will be monitoring the radio. He'll jam our signal if he knows it's us. But wait, maybe there is a way. That CB language of yours. I don't think he'd make head or tail of that. So here I am down in the rocking chair with a hammer down. Breaker, breaker with a big 1034. Go, breaker. Have you got your ears on? Well, shake the trees and rake the leaves. It's a 10-5 for Chief Smokey Bear Worthington. Hope this is wall-to-wall and treetop tall. 10-33. What do you think that's all about? Well, somebody's playing around. But we have more important things to do. 10-4, buddy. I'm 10-27. Give me a hand here. Message delivered. You stay here. I'll keep in touch with you through the BATCOM. Can you hear me all right? 10-4, old buddy. Systems all go. Safe journey, Batman. Yes? Commissioner, a CB operator just phoned and said he received an emergency call for Chief Smokey Bear Worthington. Hmm. Smokey Bear means policeman, and only Batman and Robin know that my middle name is Worthington. They're in trouble. Miss Horton, call the Coast Guard and the Navy. I want all available ships sent to the Bermuda Rectangle full speed. All right, blah. Periscope up. Range 1,200 yards. 
Heading north by northwest. Start countdown. A shark! I've got to stop him. How do you stop a shark? With a bat buzzer. That is, if Batman has time to find the right frequency. Shark tooth. Push it up. Push it up. Get Pursued by two electric eels. If I can find the transatlantic telephone cable, I may be able to patch into the subcarrier's frequency. What good will that do, Batman? The phone line is DC. The eels are AC. I may be able to change their polarity. From all directions. It's the Navy. We've got to get out of here. Lucky I planned for this possibility. Start the rockets. Robin, the professor's getting away. I can't keep up with him. Turn on the bat amplifier so my voice can be heard underwater. Bat amplifier's on. Go ahead, Batman. Shark Tooth, where are you, Shark Tooth? Shark Tooth, get the bubble. Push it up, Shark Tooth. Good boy, Shark Tooth. Now push it up. Bubble up. Shark tooth, bubble up. You can come up from below. 
So long, Professor. Have a good trip to jail. Bat message. Well, I think Bat might learn that when there's a job to do, that's not the time to play around. Bat might, I hope you learn something else. Like keeping off other people's property? Of course I did. You won't find me going anyplace I'm not invited. All right, Batmite, where are you? See you next week. <laughs> and now, the fan favorite, Shipper Spotlight. Hey, everyone, it's your old pal, Josh Bertoni here. <laughs> Stella asked me to give her a hand with Shipper Spotlight this month, and, well, I asked her, are we doing this together, or do you want me to do it on my own? And she says, no, no, you can do it on your own. And I said, you're going to have me do this without a chaperone? Ho, ho, ho. Boy, are you in for a surprise. I'm going to go crazy. So here we go. A super crazy, wacky Shipper Spotlights. going to be covering one of DC Comics' craziest on-again, off-again romances. Jimmy Olsen, Superman's best buddy pal with that little bow tie, and Lucy Lane, younger sister of Lois Lane. Jimmy and Lucy are actually one of DC's longer-running on-again, off-again romances, but they don't get a lot of play. It starts off, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 36... Lucy Lane is the flight attendant, younger sister of Lois Lane, who Jimmy's trying the romance. And Dosh gone and after that first story, he's so head over heels for her that he proposes to her on the spot, but she says, Nope, I made a deal with my parents that I will only get married after Lois is allowed to marry Superman. So the status quo for a while is Jimmy dating Lucy, and Lucy's indifferent to him for a lot of stories. You know, sometimes she's into him, sometimes she's not, and tries to convince her to marry him. At one point in their Silver Age relationship, they wind up cheating on each other while they're in alter egos. Jimmy has an alter ego named Maggie, who kind of, you know, with a wig and a fake mustache looks like Tony Stark, and he's a magician. And he romances a woman named Sandra, but unbeknownst to Jimmy, Sandra is actually Lucy Lane in a wig and disguise. So basically, they're cheating on each other with each other in disguises. Oh, what a wacky romance. And there's no one there to catch your fall. Maggie eventually fakes his death, and he decides, as Jimmy, to settle down with Lucy. So they get married. What are you looking at, buddy? Your wife is quite a dish. Ooh, thanks. But on the honeymoon, they each discover each other's secret identities, and they have a pie fight. Oh, you'll be at the feast. And then they realize, ha, 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 well, this marriage was sure a mistake. Luckily, the priest shows up to say, due to a clerical error, your marriage is not legal. That happened in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 82. But they decide to try getting married again in issue 100, where all of Jimmy's crazy ex-girlfriends from those Silver Age stories wound up trying to attack them out of jealousy. So the couple decided to annul their marriage, and the judge says that he would only do it on one condition, 
if they agree to remain friends. Daw. They still saw each other occasionally throughout the Silver Age, and then things kind of got a little real in the Bronze Age. Lucy became a thrill-seeker, you know, jumping out of planes without parachutes, stuff like that. And she later disappeared uh, while going through some South American river and was presumed dead. Cannon like this? It turned out that before she died, she joined some spy organization and betrayed our country. They weren't Nazis, were they? You're the Nazis! You're trying to get me to betray my country! I'll never tell anyone the formula! Huh. What a wacky end for her. <laughs> but later on, in the Bronze Age issues of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, there was an old woman who turned out to be Lucy, due to some comic book science, who had aged and had gray hair. Jimmy helped her return to normal, but instead of remaining with Jimmy romantically, she decided to give her life to helping others. Right before Crisis, she showed up again in a two-issue Lois Lane series, where the two kind of looked like they might be getting back together, but Crisis happened, and as in the post-Crisis universe, Jimmy and Lucy dated each other on again, off again, but ultimately both settled into other things. Lucy's other thing turned out to be Ron Trope, another Daily Planet reporter, who she married and had a kid with. She still wound up walking down the aisle with Jimmy, but not as husband and wife, but as best man and maid of honor at Lois Lane's wedding to Clark Kent in the Superman wedding album. So hot or not? Swiper no swiping! Swiper no swiping! Swiper no swiping! You know, when a guy marries a girl twice, and they each cheat on each other in their secret identities, that's a special kind of cray-cray, and it's so crazy that I think it's hot. So this has been Shipper Spotlight. Don't worry, Stella will be back with her, you know, regular, highbrow brand of humor. Oh, is she behind me? No, I'm in front of you. In the meantime... This is Bertoni. See y'all later. finally, my literature recommendations. So, over the summer, I said I read all of the, or, yeah, I read all of the books with an author of the last name starting with A, and meaning not, you know, everywhere in the library or all of the books in existence, but on my particular long reading list, which, of course, you can still find. I actually just completed the G's now, and I'm going to recommend autobiography or an autobiography of a face 
by Lucy Greeley. And true story, obviously, it's an autobiography, and it's basically following Lucy when she was a child, starting around nine, and she was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive form of cancer that actually took about half of her lower uh, jaw. And so it starts off, you know, just with her first discovery of this cancer and then the tests, trying to figure out what it was, taking it, uh, the chemo and everything, and then a lot of the, the reconstruction that she went through and just a, a long journey and painful in many ways, you know, emotionally and physically. And just her living with this uh disfigurement which i know like later it's it's noted that you know she never liked this word disfigurement but of course losing half of your jaw uh would make you look differently and something i i feel like some of the girls at my school would actually really benefit from reading this just because uh a lot of it deals with her her belief uh that she was ugly and and how being ugly she, no one would ever love her and things like that and it was uh it was certainly tough to read but i think it would be good for you know students to to see that there are more important things perhaps than what their current beauty is and and that people have more you know difficult problems and everything like that and and that she was she dove into other things to to find self-worth. It was very strong. It was sad to read, um, but I, I thought it was a really strong book as well. And it wasn't very long. It was a little over 200 pages, so it's certainly a, a quicker read than, than some of the books that I recommend. So, yes, Autobiography of a Face, I certainly recommend that. Well, that is it for this episode. Thanks to Josh Bertoni for his shipper spotlight. I hope you all enjoyed that. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolltheoracle. Like the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Until next time, as we inch ever closer to episode 100, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll... I love a happy ending, don't you?